Amen. Well, let me invite you to turn in your worship guide to page three for the reading of Scripture. The reading today comes from Mark's Gospel, chapter 10, verse 1 through verse 12. Would you listen now with open ears as I read from these words from the book that we love? And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, quote, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What, therefore, God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise be to you, O Christ. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we come to this time and we sit under these uh, difficult words. Uh, Lord, for some of us, these words are very familiar. Uh, we've heard these. We've thought about them. Uh, for some of us, these words are very unfamiliar. They're very strange. They strike a very strange tone as we uh, have heard them spoken. Lord, for some of us, uh, these words are words that we live by. For others of us, these words make no sense at all. Lord, for some of us, we're here uh, and we are in a good place. Things are going well in our lives. For others of us, our lives are a complete and total wreck at the moment. And Lord, I recognize further that some of us come in here with faith in you, looking to hear from you, looking to uh, be changed by you, and others of us come in here and we are filled with objections uh, to these words uh, and to the concept uh, of a God, and then into some of us to you in specific. And Lord, I pray therefore whatever place we find ourselves in today, whether we are here in a time of blessing or in a time of great difficulty, whether we are here uh, in a time where things are going well, uh, where everything's going wrong, whether we are here uh, with bringing with us much faith in you or whether we come here bringing all kinds of objections and doubts about you. I pray that you would give us grace today. Give us all grace to see that in the way that matters the most, that every single one of us ultimately comes here the same. Uh, we have all come in here with an overwhelming need uh, for grace, for forgiveness, for blessing, Pray that you would show us, give us eyes to see how you have addressed uh, these needs and the work and the person of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I want to say that was about the weakest response to the reading of Scripture we've had in a long time, but it's apropos because I think that what you're feeling is that it's hard to say this is the good news of the Lord, isn't it? Right? This is the gospel of the Lord, and there was a very, like, thanks be to God, right? Very weak response, but I don't blame you at all because, to be truth be told, as I was thinking about preaching this sermon, I had a similar response at first. 
right? Uh, when I was growing up, I remember my pastor once saying that his very uh, most hated topic to preach on was actually the topic of divorce. That was back in the 90s. Um, and it's gotten, it's gotten worse, I think, actually today. Um, if, you don't, if you're new to Ironworks, you're visiting, I want to tell you that Ironworks was started back in 2011 to be of use, particularly to those of you who do not consider yourselves Christian, who, have, who are perhaps exploring Christian faith, who have big objections to Christianity. We wanted to form a church community that holds to an ancient faith, that holds to ancient scriptures, and yet is still useful to you, uh, is still uh, reasonable to you. And in our particular cultural moment, from the chair that I sit in, there is no topic in all of the scripture uh, that is more difficult to defend at this moment than uh, the view of marriage, divorce, and gender. There is no topic in our current cultural moment that uh, is more difficult to defend in uh, America at this time than this particular topic. And so, I would have delegated this passage to Sam, right? <laughs> but I forgot. No, just kidding. <laughs> No, in, in, all, in honesty, uh, was actually, uh, I've been reading a book um, that I've shared with some of you. I've been reading a book uh, on the theology of the body, and this particular book, this particular passage, and really actually its counterpart in the Gospel of Matthew. So this encounter comes up in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, right, which ought to give you some indication as the kind of effect that it had on the hearers of Jesus Right, that Jesus said many things, as, as John tells us, he could fill many books with the things that he did and said, but only some of them make it into the Gospels in general, and then only some of them make it into more than one Gospel, and then only some of them make it into three of these writings. But this is one of them. Uh, it is an important topic. It is not an important topic that I would feel comfortable skipping over. Uh, number one, because if you have experienced divorce, Right? If you grew up, uh, as I did, uh, hearing the words that, you're, you know, Darren, your dad and I are, are going to divorce, right? If you heard those words, if you lived in that reality, uh, more than likely, uh, as was my experience, that was the most painful words of my entire childhood uh, that I heard. Uh, some of you uh, have experienced it yourself in your own marriages. Um, others of you, perhaps, are actually desiring that at this moment, you're thinking about that. You're thinking about how that might work. Uh, so this is a topic that is of immense importance. There is no more important relationship in your lives than the person that you choose to be married to if you're married, right? And yet marriage, statistically speaking, is arguably the most difficult relationship you'll ever have. So um, I might, might need to ask my statistician uh, friends here to help with this, trying to understand the statistics from what, what is a, a commonly made statement is that about 50% of marriages end in divorce. It's actually not entirely true. What's a more true way to say it is that there are approximately half the number of divorces in the U.S. as there are marriages on any given year. Right, so if you look at the data for Pennsylvania, for example, years where there's about 7.2 marriages per thousand people, there's right around three, 3.1 uh, mar uh, divorces per thousand. It, it tracks kind of in that general ballpark. Um, but one, one article I, said, I read said, well, we don't know if it's about half, but it's probably a good estimate. 
Um, secondly, I get on about once, maybe once every couple months, I will get an email and it will read almost identically every time. It will say something like this. It will say, Dear, it'll say, Dear Pastor, I'm looking for a new church and before I visit your church, I need to know something. Do you support gay marriage? Right? And do you affirm those who would want to be in a gay marriage? Thanks. And so I write back and I say uh, the following. I will say, dear friend, uh, it is our goal to affirm you, to honor you, to respect you, uh, to show you the kindness and hospitality of Jesus Christ in every way possible. Answer the first question, do we affirm you? Yes. Secondly, do we support gay marriage? Answer, we do not take a political opinion. Our church remains apolitical. We do not comment on uh, political questions such as what should the legality of these practices be. We do not, you will not find the, uh, the authors of our doctrinal statement, which by the way is how the church takes a position. Darren taking a position does not mean the church takes one. Uh, you will not find a position on that. We do not take a position on the civil magistrate in that respect. But lastly, you need to know that we are absolutely 100% committed to the scriptures of the Old and New Testament, and therefore we teach, we try to do as best we can teaching what they teach, and that will come up in here with respect to questions surrounding gay marriage. So that's what I say, um, and, and usually it's met with, thank you for being real, thank you for being uh, respectful, appreciate that very much. Um, and often folks uh, choose not to attend uh, because we are upfront with what we teach. Sometimes uh, we do have a number of folks who do attend who uh, do have same-sex attraction, do de desire to be uh, in a marriage with the same gender. Some of the people that are most important to me in my life are either married to someone of the same gender or would like to be. So this is for me both on uh, the questions pertaining divorce, the questions pertaining gay marriage, and then the questions for, for you most of you who I, who I care very deeply about, for you to have a successful marriage. All of these questions are far too important for me to simply walk away from this passage as I would be tempted to. Uh, but it is where we are here in the Gospel of Mark, and I have found uh, some very um, deep, some very uh, strong things in this passage that I hope will be a blessing to you. So I'd like to walk through it with you. I'm just gonna make some brief observations and then try to answer some common questions and then to make some application for how you might take some of these things uh, and put them into practice, uh, perhaps in your own marriage or as you walk with others. Let's get into it together. Uh, number one, verse two, you need to understand this. The question of divorce is raised, right? Why is it raised uh, in this passage? And the answer is clearly said in verse two, because there are a group of people that are called the Pharisees, and their desire is to test the Lord Jesus. More accurately, uh, we, we might say, their desire is to cause him to screw up, right? What Mark is doing is Jesus has now set his face to go to Jerusalem. He has the cross in view. He is going from out in the rural parts of the country. He's headed to the place that he will be executed, the place he will be mistreated, the place where he will be rejected, that's where he's going. And as he's going there, the tensions are heating up, right? There will be more efforts to cause him to come into great trouble. Uh, in the Gospel of Mark, we do learn uh, about John the Baptist, one of Jesus' colleagues. And John the Baptist, uh, in this particular time, was actually beheaded 
in not too distant past because he condemned Herod, um, non, uh, ruler there at that time, for divorcing his wife, right? He condemned him, and he was actually executed and beheaded for that. And so it is perhaps the desire of the Pharisees that if they can get Jesus to take an, a, a position on this matter, that they could perhaps get him to be dealt with by Herod. That's one option. The other option is that in the Jewish community, there was a lot of division on this topic. So it could be the case that no matter what position Jesus took, no matter what answer he gave to this question, that he would cause division, that he would cause a commotion in such a way that his cause would be negatively impacted. Now, it's important for you to know that when the Pharisees asked this question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? I do want to encourage you, if you want to read more about this, to actually read in Matthew's gospel. It's in chapter 19. It fills out the details a little more. In Matthew's gospel, they say, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Okay, and when you read that, I think, hmm, I've not heard that one before. But sure enough, if you go and you research this, you'll find that there were two camps inside of Jewish teaching. There was a man named Hillel, rabbi named Hillel, and one named Shammai. Um, And Hillel said, it is right to divorce your wife for any reason at all, including there was a proverb that said, if she spoils, suffer. Okay, right? That's what they taught. They said, if she spoils, suffer, uh, you, you you may legally divorce her, send her away. Right? On the other hand, uh, Shammai took the position that said, no, that reason can only be for adultery. And so there's a big debate about this, and one of the reasons there was, I think, such a debate is because as Jesus will point out, right, and as you probably know and you feel in the depth of your soul, that there are actually a fair number of contradictions in the Old Testament. Right? One of the questions that, one of the issues uh, that I hear about are, you know, pastor, I can't understand the Old Testament. God seems, you know, really angry in the Old Testament, really nice in the New Testament. How do we make sense of that, right? And, uh, of course, we, we always do <laughs> refer them to Sam because he likes to preach those passages. Very good at it. Um, but what's happening here, and this is perhaps, I think, one of the most helpful answers to this question, why does the Old Testament have so many apparent contradictions? Right. Why, does it, why does God, for example, one question that you probably have, I know I've heard this a number of times, why did God allow polygamy, it, it would seem, back then, but, but then now it's not okay? What's going on with that? Right? And I'll tell you, if you have that question, you will look in vain in the Old Testament for a command against polygamy. You will not find it. But yet, right, in the New Testament, for example, to be an, an elder, it says you must be the husband of one wife. And of course, uh, the church vehemently teaches that polygamy is outside of God's design. And so this question arises, well, how do we make sense of that? Likewise, uh, as the Pharisees pointed out, in the 24th chapter of uh, the book of Deuteronomy, there was a provision for facilitating a divorce. Right? There was a provision for facilitating a divorce and therefore, that caused them to form this uh, opinion, some, some saying, yes, yeah, you can divorce your wife or spoiling supper uh, for any reason whatsoever. So how are we to think about it? Well, I think that Jesus, in his response, my perspective is one of the most absolutely helpful comments on this entire issue of understanding the Old Testament. And let me look, look with me at it, would you please? 
Look at verse 5. Jesus says this. Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment, right? Or in Matthew's gospel said, he allowed you to divorce your wives. He allowed. But from the beginning of creation, verse 6, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two flesh, two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now, what is Jesus saying here? It's so, it's so important that you see this. Jesus is saying, if you take Matthew's reading, right? Moses allowed you to divorce. Why? Really important, guys. Because your hearts are hard, right? One commentator says it this way. He says, what Jesus is effectively saying is that sin, to a certain extent, was legalized. That's what they had, one chapter of, of this book that really blew me away. He said, called it legalized sin. That Jesus allowed you to do this. Why? Because your hearts were hardened. And, and of course, if you look at the passage in Deuteronomy, what you'll find is that what Jesus is doing is he's making provisions to care for the woman, right? To make sure that she could not be even more mistreated than she already was. And you have to understand, I think, that a lot of what you'll see in the Old Testament, a lot of what you'll see in the Old Testament is God regulating the product of hard hearts, right? That if you read in, for example, to Deuteronomy 24, you know, this provision, you say, oh, well, God must be okay with divorce. He must be happy with it, you know, and you are absolutely misunderstanding, misreading uh, his intention there. Uh, and what Jesus does here is he draws a contrast from the law in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 5, to what he says from the beginning, verse 6, right? From the beginning, he'll say in Matthew, it was not this way. Right? On one hand, we have God's design. On the other hand, we have regulation for hardened hearts. Do you see that? That's what he's doing here. And uh, what Jesus will do is he will answer the question by going back to God's design. Now, it's important that I mention a couple of things here, right? The, those who are testing Jesus Christ right, the way that they're testing him. Is it lawful to do this, right? I want to point out something for you because it's really, it's really important that you see this. These folks were the religious leadership of the time, and I want to make clear what they were doing. They were taking Holy Scripture, and they were using it and twisting it in such a way as to condemn an innocent man, and that is what's called legalism, right? If, you, if, if you've ever heard this term, a legalist is someone who takes a holy writing and uses it in order to control other people to their own ends, right? And it's why, by the way, that legalists always, 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 always have a profound amount of hypocrisy, right? And we're seeing that come out in an overwhelming numbers nowadays. We have legalist preachers all over the country who uh, scandals are coming out with. So, for example, Bill Gothard is a man who used to teach you how to have a successful family. While he's developing content on how to have a successful family, he's abusing the women on his staff, right? We're seeing hypocrisy flow out of these circles and 
incredibly overwhelming and disturbing measures. And that's because legalism, such as which was driving these men in this passage, is always contains the height of hypocrisy. And I do want to point out that in the Gospels, the execution of Jesus Christ, the very people who put him to death, who orchestrated his trial, were the legalists. And it, it should also go without saying that, therefore, that legalism is not something about which reasonable people can disagree, can disagree but legalism in the New Testament is portrayed as evil. It is portrayed as evil. It has evil roots to it. As it is used here in verse um, 2, in order to take out the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's what they're doing. And the legalist, of course, is always looking for the loopholes. Right? The legalist is saying, what can I get away with? What can I do in order to feel good about myself or in order to control others but they have no regard for the design of God, right? You see the difference there? Jesus is saying, look, you're right. Moses did permit this, but God did not design it. Big difference. So what did God design? And this is where we're going to get into our second section here. Look at, if you look at verse 6, Jesus says, if you want to understand marriage, verse 6, if you want to understand divorce and the question of how should you think about this, this is what he says. From the beginning of creation... God made them male and female. Now, this, this does bring up this topic of uh, same-sex marriage or gay marriage. Um, and again, I, I, if you're here and you are um, you know, supporting this or you are uh, in, a, in a marriage of the same gender, I just want you to know I love you. We respect you. Um, I hope that you can entertain perhaps um, an opinion on these matters, from, not from me, but from the Scriptures, um, and, and hope that you see in, in these comments that I am trying to uh, present them in a way that honors the text but is also respectful to those of you who might disagree. Now, let's look at it uh, closer. In the beginning, God created, made them male and female. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. You see, in the Holy Scriptures, the very essence of marriage, the very origin of marriage, of coming together, not to simply be pals, but to have what the Old Testament describes as a oneness of flesh, to have flesh that be, goes from being two distinct things to becoming one, that very oneness is rooted in God's design of male and female. That to think of marriage apart from gender from the Old Testament and the New Testament's perspective, is completely nonsensical. You cannot, in the Scriptures, conceive of a marriage relationship where one flesh is not at the absolute center, and one flesh, of course, finding its origin in the creation of male and female. And therefore, uh, Christian doctrine, Christian teaching has always held that this relationship that is bound up in gender is absolutely at the center of marriage. You, you, cannot, you cannot conceive of it in a way that does not put the one fleshness here at the center. 
And of course, what God is doing in marriage is He is designing a relationship that is absolutely unlike any other relationship that is bound up in what's called a covenant or a, a promise, whereby someone says to the other, I promise to stay with you in the future even if I don't want to, right? That's what marriage is. And that relationship is then further sanctified by doing something you don't do with anyone else, which is to say, I will become one with you. I'll become one with you physically, financially, emotionally. We will probably have children together. We will have a relationship that's unlike any other relationship we will ever have with anyone else. And that relationship is bound up in this idea of covenant. And therefore, the very essence of marriage is bound up in a promise, right? Tim Keller was so helpful on this. He said, you know, I find that whenever I let couples write their own vows, and this has not been my experience, those of you who wrote your own vows, okay? Not criticizing you, but his, his people not as good. He said, whenever, whenever I have people write, my own, write their own vows for marriage, he said, they almost always talk about the present. And he's like, but marriage doesn't really care about the present, right? The covenant of marriage is not concerned with what's happening now. The covenant of marriage is concerned with what's happening in the future, right? It's not like, oh, I love you and I'm infatuated by you and, you know, I just want to be with you all the time. It's no, marriage is, I promise to be with you when I don't want to be anymore, that's, that's the promise of marriage. When you make a covenant with someone, you're saying, I'm going to swear legally, spiritually, physically to be with you the rest of my life until death do us part. Marriage is always, the covenant is primarily concerned about the future, right? Because if you're infatuated with another person, you don't need a covenant to stay with them at that moment. But when the infatuation is over, that covenant provides something that no other relationship can provide, hence marriage. Therefore, if that's the case, if the essence of marriage is bound up in a promise, in a covenant, then the concept of divorce, the concept of saying, you know, I don't like you anymore, you spoiled supper one too many times, right? Uh, let's go our separate ways. That concept makes no sense whatsoever, right? However, of course, Old Testament and arguably in Matthew 19, the New Testament does allow it in certain cases. How do we think about that? Well, uh, if you take this analogy, this uh, analogy the scripture uses where it says, people that are married become one flesh, right? One flesh, what does that mean? It means therefore that when you have a divorce, what you're effectively doing is having an amputation, right? And, and Tim Keller is helpful on this, he says, Amputations are, are sometimes necessary, right? You have gangrene, have an extreme situation, you will need to have an amputation. But if you go to a doctor and you say, hey, you know, I sort of like got cut while I was at the office, you know, hammering some nails, and the doctor says, oh, you got cut? Well, let me amputate, right? You, you would fire that doctor, the doctor would lose his license, etc. And in the same way, what the, old, what the scriptures here present for you, I think it's very nuanced and very helpful, is this. God's design is for permanence, but yet there are certain situations where amputation is necessary. Do you hear that, Do you hear that nuance that's recognizing the fact that 
we do live in a world that's permeated with what this passage calls hardness of heart. Marriage is permanent, but sometimes, and this will come out more so in Matthew's reading of it, if you read Matthew 19, it says sometimes it's necessary, right? And so he does permit it. And I'll tell you, friends, that um, if you take that perspective, I think you can uh, love people and you can walk with people in ways that are helpful to them and recognize the brokenness uh, of the world in which we live. I remember one time I um, was sort of walking with someone through divorce in the morning, walking with others through premarital counseling in the evening. And uh, that, is, that is the job of a pastor, it seems, is to walk with you in the times where you are experiencing the brokenness of this world in its most severe form. And if you read in Matthew 19, you'll see that what Jesus is saying here is he's saying divorce is completely unlawful except for the case of adultery, right? Except for the case of adultery because adultery, we understand, is, is one party breaking the covenant with the other. Uh, in Paul's letter to the Corinthians chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he will also add for what we might call willful desertion. And so what we have in, in Christian faith is we have, on one hand, an extraordinarily high standard, right, an extraordinarily high. In fact, the disciples uh, in Matthew's gospel will say, if this is true, then no one should get married. <laughs> That's how, how they were affected by it, right? It's extremely high, but yet it also recognizes the fact that, that things are not as they're supposed to be. And as an aside, uh, dear friends, people that I love very dearly, if you want to have a marriage that doesn't end in divorce, right? Those of you who are married, those of you who want to be married someday, right? If you want to have a marriage that does not end in divorce, you want to know what the most important thing is to making that happen from this passage. Most important, single most important quality to have in order to have a marriage that doesn't end in divorce. You know what it is? It's a soft heart. I cannot tell you how common it is. Uh, most of the time, folks uh, wait to come to the pastor until a lot of water is under the bridge, okay? A lot of, of stuff has rolled downhill. Uh, most of the time, folks come to, Pastor, we need to meet with you. And I say, oh, yeah, what's going on? Well, for the last 20 years, <laughs> you know, we've been, <laughs> I'm like, okay, well, how long have I been your pastor? <laughs> um, you know, I haven't been that busy, right? But... Um, but no, in all, in all seriousness, I will tell you that in those cases, right, when there's been 20 years of sin and hardness and grudges and complaints, you know, it is very difficult. It is very difficult to intervene in those cases. Why? Answer? Because over 20 years of sin and grudges and problems, the heart gets pretty hard. It gets pretty hard. And that is, uh, according to this passage, that is what is behind uh, the issue of uh, marriages that do end in divorce primarily. And so if you're here and you, you, know, you are married or you, you want to be married or um, you're in that place, I can tell you that one of the things this passage would, would plead with you so strongly to cultivate is a heart that's soft, a heart that's quick to forgive, a heart that doesn't want to wait 20 years to go see someone else for help, right? A heart that says, look, Let's just, let's go do this before we, we become more hardened than we already are. So that's where we are. But on the other hand, we do have this reality of 
why would God, why would God permit this uh, as he did? Why would, he, why would this contradiction be allowed to be in Holy Scripture the way that it is? And this, of course, uh, unlocks uh, teaching of Jesus Christ that was so revolutionary at its time. You see, part of what Mark is doing here is he's representing the Lord Jesus as being a revolutionary when it came to the topic of morality, right? If you read through particularly the Synoptic Gospels, if you read through Matthew especially in particular, you will see that Jesus was revolutionary when it came to the topic of morality, right? And that's because he, he was coming into a time that was absolutely permeated by legalism, right? And so the legalists are saying, yes, it is wrong to commit adultery, right? And Jesus says, well, yes, it's wrong to commit adultery, not just with your body, this is Sermon on the Mount, but with your mind as well. You see, the legalists are only focused on the outside, and Jesus says, look, when you were looking at that person and then thinking about committing adultery with them, it's the same thing. You are actually doing it. You are actually an adulterer in that case. Or when you were so angry with another person that you thought about hurting them, you thought about hurting them maybe emotionally, physically, whatever, you're in the same place as a murderer. This is Sermon on the Mount, right? And so Jesus was constantly getting in trouble with the legalists because on one hand, while he was called a drunkard, while he was looked at as being someone who was kind of not conforming to their standard, he was at the same time blowing up their standard all over the place, right? And so the legalist actually in the scripture doesn't go far enough. And, of course, uh, in response to Jesus' teaching, look, if you divorce your wife, you're an adulterer. If you lust after another woman, you're an adulterer. If you want to hurt someone who, you know, messes with your life, you're a murderer. The response to that is, well, well gosh, well, which one of us can actually fulfill the law? And Jesus says, bingo. Right? That is the message of Christian faith, is that the law is far more strict than you know, and then Jesus will go on to say, but I came to fulfill the law, right? To understand this passage, to understand the death blow that Jesus was inflicting on these folks, you have to understand that, you see, the reason God permitted this and the reason he permitted all the things that you have questions about in the Old Testament, like, why would you permit that? What are you doing? Why are you doing this? There's one answer, God permitted all kinds of sins, including the ones that you commit, by the way, because he planned to place those sins on the back of his son. All right, that is what the scripture teaches. He could have chosen to deal with those sins in the moment by inflicting judgment on all those who would commit them, including those who are sitting in these chairs right here this morning, right? When you, when you looked at that image recently, when you had that thought of vengeance, right, when you held that grudge, he could have judged you. He could have inflicted the judgment that I have been owed on more times than I would care to admit. But instead, he chose in his wisdom to place those things on his son. So one of my favorite songs says, what wisdom once devised the plan where all our sin and pride was placed upon the holy lamb who suffered, bled, and died. The wisdom of a sovereign God whose greatness shall, will be shown when those who crucified his son 
rejoice around his throne. Right, dear friends, this is Christian faith. Christian faith says on one hand, you are far more screwed up than you ever imagined. And on the other hand, God has made provision so that every sin, every hurtful word, every image that you've looked at, that in Christ can be forgiven, can be wiped away. And if you embrace that towards yourself, by the way, you will find that you are able to keep a soft heart even towards your spouse who hurts you, right? If you want, the key to having a soft heart towards those who hurt you, by the way, is to have a deeper understanding of how you have inflicted sin and hurt and you were, in a very substantial way, you would have been on the whips towards the Lord Jesus Christ and yet he willingly takes those sins, he absorbs them into the depths of his soul, and then he says, I want you to come close to me. I want you to be in my family, even though you have hated me, even though that you have rejected me. I want you to rejoice around my throne. And so friends, wherever you are, uh, if you believe as we do, if you believe in Christian faith, if you're hearing, I don't believe in any of this stuff, I do wanna encourage you to, to ask yourself this question, right? What is marriage? Is marriage simply the creation of people to kind of form societies that work? Or is it something that's outside of this world? You know, every, almost every culture in the history of the world has had some concept of marriage. And the scriptures declare that God is the author of that relationship and that he has a design for that relationship. And the design is summarized in the word oneness, in the word faithfulness. And here's a, here's a quote from this uh, Theology of the Body. Um, Pope John Paul says this. He says, faithfulness can only be found in an exclusive relationship where husband and wife unite to become one. In this way, husband and wife become an authentic sign of God's love. All of Christian sexual morality hinges on whether the union of bodies is a truthful sign of God's love. Adultery, divorce, marriage that is not born out of gender, all of that fails this test. And so we understand, therefore, that God has given us marriage in a very real way to reveal the faithfulness that he has to you, right? Why do we have marriages that are hard? Why is it hard to be faithful to someone for the whole of your lives? And the answer is because what God is doing is he's revealing how faithful he is to you. That is what he's doing. Paul says, I'm not talking about marriage when I read these passages, but I'm talking, this is Ephesians 5, I'm talking about Christ and his church. God has given us marriage to have a deeper understanding of the gospel. So therefore, my exhortation to you today is to cultivate a soft heart, to drink deeply of his grace, to walk in humility, and to embrace his design uh, that's found even in your own bodies, even in the genders of male and female. Let me pray for you. Lord Jesus, we thank you uh, that you have come to forgive all of my sins, all of our sins, that you have placed them all on the Holy Lamb who suffered, bled, and died. Lord, and I pray particularly for those this morning who are hurting, who are broken, for whom this topic is not theoretical, this is not um, something that concerns other people, but it's personal. Lord, I pray that you would pour out grace upon each one. 
Lord, I pray for those uh, of us here who have been, um, who have been grieved uh, by parents divorcing, by experiencing divorce ourselves. Lord, I pray that you would uh, show us that in you we have the faithful one. In you, though we have forsaken you 10,000 times, that you are always faithful, that you always welcome us back, that you always love us, that you are establishing with us a covenant that will never come to an end. And Lord, I pray that you'd bless the marriages of our church, that you would give us soft hearts, that we would cultivate uh, the softness of the gospel in our lives. And I pray for our kids, uh, that our kids would grow up um, likewise knowing your covenant, your grace uh, to them as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.